Welcome back, and thank you for joining us again in the Undertow for Episode 8 of the Undertow Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. My name is Robert Watson, and I am joined tonight, as always, by my co-host, Bubba Beasley. Hey, everybody. Hey, Bubba. He blogs at uh, criminalcomic.blogspot.com and uh, keeps everybody up to speed on all the Brubaker and Phillips news. Uh, we want you to break out the flannel and the uh, Alice in Chains tonight because we are going back to the 90s, um, taking you back, and we're going to talk about one of Ed Brubaker's very first crime comics called Scene of the Crime. Um, it does mark the first time that he and Sean Phillips work together in uh, any kind of capacity on a comic book, so we're excited about that. Um, as always, you can uh, find our episodes at undertow.podbean.com. They are also available on iTunes. Um, if you'd like to send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we got a couple emails out there from fans after the last episode, so we appreciate that. Keep those coming. Um, we are also on Twitter, at undertowpodcast, so you can reach out that way if you'd like as well. Um, we will start things off here and kind of get you up to speed on all the, the latest Brubaker and Phillips news. I think Bubba's got a few pieces he's going to talk about. Um, and then, like I said, next month um, we will be back into Killer Be Killed. I think there's a Issue number five is set to come out tomorrow um, based on this recording date. So uh, next month we'll dive back into Killer Be Killed number five. But since we had an off month last month, uh, December, there was no new issue of Killer Be Killed. We thought we would dive into the uh, back catalog of Brubaker and Phillips, which we're obviously big fans of. And this seemed like a logical place to start since this is kind of the beginning of the the team coming together that... Uh, that's the inspiration for this podcast. So we're going to talk scene of the crime tonight. And uh, like I said, I'll hand things off to Bubba, and he can uh, get you up to speed on the latest news. Well, as uh, Robert uh, has relayed, this has been kind of a quiet month. Um, the, the the statistic that Ed Brubaker gives fans and readers is that he and Sean Phillips uh, produce about uh, 10 comics a year. And uh, with Velvet as a comic book at least, being on, on hiatus. Really, it is Brubaker and Phillips that, that is the only work that that we've been focusing on uh, for, for this podcast on a regular basis. And um, so we, we have a quiet month. We did get a newsletter from uh, Brubaker's email uh, uh, listserv uh, right at the end of the year. And once again, Brubaker hinted that, that he has a few secret TV projects in various stages of development. And he says, uh, quote, one that you could hear about at any moment. And, but so far, um, nothing yet. So we're, we're keeping our ears open and, and we'll certainly cover whatever news comes out um, on a monthly basis uh, here on the podcast. And then more immediately, there, there is the, uh, the, the, um, blog, a criminal blog at uh, criminal com- criminalcomic.blogspot.com. And then there's uh, my Twitter feed as well. Uh, in the meantime, um, as we're producing the, the show on uh, Tuesday night, the 17th, we're just, you know, we're less than 24 hours away from the, from uh, things getting back to speed. We'll, we'll have uh, two uh, releases out this week. The uh, first trade paperback of Killer Be Killed, uh, collecting the first four issues at a uh, discounted um, volume one price that Image uh, tends to do of only nine uh, nine ninety nine, I believe. And the uh, fifth issue, Killer Be Killed number five. So you can you can catch up with the entire series uh, tomorrow with the new arrivals in stores. I think the biggest news to cover is something that just came was announced um, really the end of last week on Friday the thirteenth. That um, this February, so in, in a month, um, we'll be celebrating the 25th anniversary of Image Comics. And to celebrate, uh, Image Comics is doing uh, 15 uh, variant covers for their uh, slate of uh, regularly scheduled releases for, for for February. Eleven of those variant covers have uh, have been released, and they're they're homages, where one title imitates uh, a, uh, a different title's uh, cover, usually a, a classic cover. And we see that uh, Killer Be Killed number six um, emulates and, and honors probably one of the most most famous and most popular, most well-read 
uh, of all of uh, Image's comics uh, comics releases over the last 25 years, which is The Walking Dead number one. And if you actually uh, look at the artwork closely enough, you can see in the reflection of the shattered uh, storefront glass, storefront window, you can see a reflection of the uh, the cop who is front and center in the uh, standard um, in the, the the standard cover. And it looks like that uh, this cover will be out uh, the same time as the uh, as that standard cover. So, Killer Be Killed number six, currently scheduled for um, February fifteenth. Uh, just after Valentine's, which is probably exactly the right time to, to be reading a uh, a comic about a a, um, a a cynical vigilante. So that's that's what we got uh, for for uh, this month. Yeah, twenty five years of Image Comics. That's that's pretty cool, uh, and they've definitely evolved into something different than they were when they first started. So that's cool. And um, yeah, I remember. I think I've got a faded a faded wizard copy from about the time that image launched with a very cool Todd McFarlane spawn image on the front when they were really, really blowing up. Um, and yeah, I think I read a, I read a comics Alliance interview with Brubaker since the last episode too. And I'm not sure how recent it was, but, um, I took note the way they described killer be killed was crystal meth insane, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Brubaker also mentioned was talked about Velvet in the article and said he hopes to return to her a lot in the future. Next story would take place in the late seventies, early eighties. So it sounds like there could be more Velvet on the way at some point in time. So we'll we'll definitely keep tuned to that. Um, and so yeah, like I said, next month we'll be back to Killer Be Killed. But this month uh, we're happy to dive into Scene of the Crime. Um, so it was originally published by Vertigo in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, it's the first time Brubaker worked with artist Michael Lark, and Sean Phillips uh, came on to ink um, the last few issues of that, I think maybe number two through number four. It's a four-part series. And uh, there's a cool, in the in the image re-release that they did uh, in the last couple years, there's, there's a, um, Ed did a little write-up at the end of the book and kind of talks about how the whole team came together, and, and that's a good read. Very serendipitous. It kind of came out of nowhere. They did their thing for a couple of issues. And what was originally planned to be an ongoing series and then a series of miniseries and then just ended up just being this one story. They, they did it together and, you know, they keep crossing paths with each other, but they did this one thing and, and then, you know, immediately moved on. Yeah, it was a cool, it's a cool thing. And it's just, it's kind of like a, a rock band coming together for the first time, you know, and everything just like, like, like Bubba said, everything just kind of fell into place and, um, they obviously realized that they had some chemistry, and so anyway, this book kind of led to Brubaker being hired by DC. Uh, then he and Sean Phillips worked on Gotham Noir, then Sleeper, then uh, Gotham Central with Michael Lark again, and you know the rest is kind of history and led to uh, indirectly to this podcast and all the all the great books that they've put out over the years. So this is kind of where it all came together for the first time, and um, it's. It's really pretty pretty amazing how flushed out this is, and that the style that Brubaker had down even at this early stage. It's it's uh, very similar to his his contemporary books and feel, and and the characters. And like I said, he just had the tone um, right out of the right out of the box. He had it down, and uh, the whole formula is there that that's worked throughout the whole criminal books and Fatal and the Fade Out and. Yeah, we'll go ahead before we dive into the the book in great detail. We'll give our. Uh, our spoiler alert that we give every episode. Obviously, we're going to break down the book. We will have uh, major spoilers for Scene of the Crime and maybe a few minor spoilers for other Brubaker books that that um, leads us to talk about other things in the in the Brubaker catalog. So, so yeah, definitely read the book prior to listening to this podcast, and uh, you won't be disappointed. It's a great read. And with the spoiler warning, where if we're cracking open the book, we're going to uh, crack open beverages. So. With a with a book this vintage, I figured instead of my my usual uh, Guinness draft, it's a Guinness Extra Stout. Basically, their their original formula, if I understand it correctly, the the Coke Classic of bottled Guinness. So, so here we go. The the Extra Stout, huh? Yep. Which I I actually haven't had before, so we we will see how it goes. Well, I hope it's extra good. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing that I noticed, and uh, Brubaker points out. Um, in his afterward, but it's obvious it's it's immediately noticeable that uh, this story is way wordier than current Brubaker books. He packs a lot of text and a lot of narration into each frame, um, and so that's the only main difference. Like I said, I f- it felt like 
a contemporary Brubaker book to me, because I, of course, was reading this after I had read most of his other work. I did not read this when it originally came out, but went back to it when, when Image re-released it in trade format a couple years ago. Um, but yeah, it's very obvious. Lots of text in each frame. His narration is much sparser now. And it is first-person narration from the main character. The main character is Jack Harriman, who is a, a private investigator, um, appears to be in his 20s. And uh, in, the, in the Image re-release, Brian Michael Bendis writes the foreword, and uh, he calls it classic noir with a modern sensibility and uh, says it's his favorite Brubaker book. So that's a little interesting tidbit that I, I took note of. In terms of the gravity of the story, both, both the mystery that, that Harriman is, being, is investigating and kind of the reader's mystery about Harriman's life, yeah, it, it is a pretty heavy book. And, and you, know, you mentioned Bendis's uh, introduction. He actually says that this remains his uh, his favorite uh, book of theirs. And and I still think I would place uh, Sleeper and especially Criminal um, and probably probably the fade out as well um, higher up in the rankings. But I I can definitely see it. And it's I don't think it's a given that a book this early in in uh, Brubaker's career, particularly um, his career transitioning from the indie comic scene to to you know one of the big players vertigo being um one of dc's uh, imprints at this point um i don't think it's a given that that this sort of debut with lark and then with the second issue with, with sean phillips would be as strong as it is um he follows this up with with a book called dead enders which is this fu- futuristic post-apocalyptic but also very very mod as in mod squad, you know, sixties era sensibility. And it's an interesting read, but I'm not, I, I don't think I would categorize it as a great read compared to say, say scene of the crime. Yeah. That's quite high praise from, uh, from Bendis. But yeah. And I've also seen, like I said, it's, it's, so it's set in the late nineties. Um, I read some, another review where they, they referred to it as a gen X noir, um, which, which I thought was good, you know, and there's lots of kind of nineties tropes in it and slang. they, you know, you get a couple people called narcs at times. We get lots of flannel, lots of ponytails, and there's even a we even get a soul patch or two, I think, showing up on on some of the characters. So that's kind of some nice '90s references in it. But but it holds up really, really well. It doesn't seem dated at all. And even even the to- the attire, there was a um, I believe a, a Vanity Fair article I saw a couple years ago, and I think it's online that uh, points out that technology has changed a lot um, since the '90s, but that style fashion sense really hasn't that if you look you know you compare what the what young adults you know 20s 30s what they were what uh they were wearing between say the the 30s and 50s that's a huge leap from the 50s to 70s that's a huge leap from the 70s to 90s that's a huge leap but then culturally we've kind of been been frozen in amber uh ever since they their little illustration um, had all the big changes, and the the only difference uh, between um, uh, between the '90s and um, the 20 teens was that the 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 dude in flannel and and denim in the 20 teens had um, iPhone earbuds, and that was that was it. Um, and, and it's the techno- technological difference is, you know, there there's in the scene in this. Um, uh, series, there's a little bit of of the the technology that you would see in in the 90s, and um, you don't see um, everybody on cell phones. You don't see a whole lot, you know, the, the, a whole lot of of the internet, and a caller ID um, makes a um, is, is a key component of how Harriman unravels the mystery. And if you go back to see when he uses a phone that has caller ID, it's clearly there. But I think that might be the one of the the um, rare things that I, it does hold up, but may not be as easily caught um, today as it would be 20 years ago when you had caller ID as a separate um, separate device that you would connect into your telephone. Well, yeah, and it also feels you know it's it's interesting too because. 
so many of the criminal books or a lot of Brubaker's books are period pieces that are not contemporary. And so then I'm, you know, but of course this book was contemporary at the time it came out. But, you know, like I said, I read it uh, much later than when it was first released and to where uh, it feels normal for him to be writing in an era that's not necessarily contemporary, which, you know, the late 90s, we're not talking about that long ago, but um, still not a contemporary piece now. So it's just kind of a different dynamic, I guess, because I didn't read it when it, when it was first released. But yeah, most of the story is set on the West Coast. We're in San Francisco the bulk of the time. Uh, they do travel to Santa Cruz as well. So it's a West Coast story. Um, and like Bubba, like Bubba mentioned, we just find out, we find out bits and pieces of uh, the main character Jack Harriman's past as the book progresses, um, as the main mystery is also kind of coming together. We're finding out bits and pieces of his, of his life. We find out that his dad was a policeman and died in a car bombing. Jack was there as a kid and and lost an eye in the accident, and now he lives with his uh he lives with his uncle and his uncle's girlfriend above their shop. His uncle, whose name is Newt K N U T, um, is a famous crime scene photographer, and they run a business called Scene of the Crime, which is where the the title of the book comes from. And yeah, there's a beautiful prologue in the book, um, all shadows and rain, and like I said, lots there's lots of rainy exterior shots that that Michael Lark really shines on. And there's a there's an interesting thing, Bubba, and I wanted to ask you about this. At the early in the book, when he when Jack Jack is visited by uh, Alexandra Jordan for the first time in his office, and uh, so she's explaining that she wants him, she's hiring him to track down her sister who has gone missing. And there's a there's a little moment at the end where he's talking to her, and she has this alarmed look on her face and is looking out the window, and there's you can see the shadows of the blinds over her face and. I was never clear she looks scared or surprised um, and kind of stops talking in the middle of the conversation, but it wasn't clear to me what she was looking at. Did we ever – was that ever spelled out? This is – yeah, this is one of the areas where um, as wordy as as this book is, and it is an awful lot of text, it took me you know, two hours to reread, an enjoyable two hours, and you're getting your money's worth and it's dense. This might, This is one of the few areas where it's not spelled out. My guess, though, is number one is that, that he he takes this as a as a clue and he figures out the meaning. But she she seems startled and scared by the idea of uh, of him getting close to, to her life, to um, Alex Jordan's uh, personal life. And it's, you know, neither she nor uh, the cop who points points uh um her to harriman really want 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 to let out that they're that they are in a relationship particularly because um it is from um from paul raymond's the 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 sergeant from his point of view it's an adulterous affair he's cheating cheating on his wife i i think she want my best guess is that that she wants to keep keep it on the down low but that is i it might be a stretch well, you know, it seems like that that's supposed to be an important moment. And um, the book, though, it's like you said, very dense, very complex, but it comes together in a nice, tidy way at the end to where all basically all of the questions are answered. So I didn't have a lot of questions reading it, and I've read it several times, but that was the one moment where I felt like um, I was supposed to be catching on to something there, and I, I just – it was not clear to me at all. You know, it seems like that they're going to revisit that later and come back to whatever she saw out the window. Spell it um, out. But they, uh, uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, they never go back to it. And anyway, like I said, it's not a huge deal. It was just something that I thought maybe it was just me that was missing something obvious. But it's – I think it's a lesson that you can take to a lot of um... – uh, of Brubaker's books, both with with Phillips and and without, like such as with uh, Velvet with Steve Epting, um, is that uh, Raymond's towards the end, um, when the case has seemingly been solved, uh, tell tells him that in a lot of cases the best you you do is you you find out the who and the what, who killed whom, you you never really find out the why, and as unsatisfying as that is, that is realistic that there are things unsaid and 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 mysteries still remaining um i like like this book uh one thing i do like about this book is is as you say everything is uh wrapped up um not not always happily i mean it is a noir and the the mystery that's being investigated does have a very tragic um ending though not 
they're not the typical you know law and order style ending um where the bad guy is carted away or the or the typical perry mason ending where the, where the bad guy confesses on the stand um but it there's a tragic end to the the almost movie of the week the detective mystery and then there's a lot more resolution to um to jack harriman's story his backstory and his reconciliation with 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 his girlfriend and in that and on that side of it it's <sighs> when we were talking about this uh, offline i'd mentioned that it wasn't exactly a happy ending but it was a it was a perhaps a hopeful ending and i think there's actually between those two two um sides of the story there's probably more clarity here than in quite a bit of the details in a book like like uh, Fatal with its you know with its its demon cult and its elder gods and that sort of thing or, or maybe even even um, more clarity than parts of a book like the fade out where we never really really find out what Charlie Parrish experienced um, in World War II that so that so thoroughly shattered his psyche. No, I agree. Yeah, this is much more or much less ambiguous. Um, the the ending, like I said, it's it comes together in a and it's very clearly spelled out. I mean, there's really no loose ends left left hanging. But it is. It's a satisfying ending, even though it's like you said, it's very tragic. But in in, in another instance, in Jack's life, it, it things are actually looking up by the end of the book. So, um, yeah, it's a very satisfying ending. And we should point out Paul Raymond's. Yeah, he's the police sergeant that also has a history with Jack. He's having an affair with Alexandra Jordan. Um, but he is uh, Jack's father's former partner and helped Jack out when Jack was going through issues after his father's death. So they have a history. They don't seem to um, have a real warm relationship, but uh, they do have a history. And even, and even that history, um, I think that's an area, again, as wordy as this book is, where things are left unsaid. I think it's unsaid here, but much much clearer is Paul Raymond's motivations uh, for helping out his his ex-partner's uh, his, his orphaned son is that um, the reason that that Jack's father unnamed father died was because uh, of Paul Raymond's is that it was uh, Raymond's cop uh, Raymond's car that was um, rigged to explode which which um, Jack's dad borrowed, and apparently it was also Raymond. Raymond specifically, that was being targeted uh, by the mob because he he made one too many of the the wrong enemies in a in a pretty big uh, case. So this this is an instance, you know, we see a lot of recurring theme or themes set up here that that recur in a lot of Brubaker and Phillips' works. You know the the um, childhood trauma, the, the physical handicap, you know, it's not quite as overt, um, you know, as obvious from panel to panel and page to page, but, but Jack has a scar and has lost vision in one eye, maybe even, even as a glass eye at this point. Um, and one of the cops he consults with is on crutches, much like, um, Jake in, uh, in cr the criminal arc, uh, Bad Night. And then uh, you also have here this kind of attempt to make amends, uh, an attempt to take responsibility, and and fix what what's already been broken. Yeah, and it's you know obviously hard enough to lose a parent, but he was he was actually there when it happened, watched it happen in front of him, and got injured from it. So he lost his dad and had a you know a very serious accident all at the same time, and it all happened in front of him. So yep. you know. One of the, Pretty much as bad as it gets. Yep, and one of the the um, the behind the scenes features in the um, deluxe hardcover, the the oversized hardcover that matches the same size as the the sleeper omnibus and all of the the criminal and fatal and fade out deluxes, is it's worth getting as well for the the back matter um, at the end, and you see bits and pieces of the premise for this, and one thing that was pointed out in the premise but not in the the book itself was that um 
not only did Jack Harriman see his father's death before his eyes, it was also the last thing he saw with with complete peripheral, peripheral vision. It was the last thing he saw with with full vision. So, on the one hand, it's a satisfying done in one um, story, but on the other hand, I'd I'd love to love to have seen um, more of the more stories. Um, with, with these characters. You know, if you look at the characters just from a premise basis, it actually seems a little bit like uh, the Rockford Files, where you have the the slovenly slob of a PI, you have the the um, older uh, father figure. In the case of Rockman, uh, Rockford, it was his old man, his actual dad, and in this case, uh, the uncle. <clears throat> you have your connections, um, in the uh, in the police force, um, and you even have there was a fairly popular uh, character on Rockford, played by uh, Tom Selleck before he played Magnum. He p- basically played this this straight laced um, PI who just happened to stumble stumble <laughs> who happened and everything tended to break his way. You know, uh, well we'll just wait for another clue, and you know Rockford would say, well cl- clues don't show up, and then suddenly. A clue would fall in their lap, and in this case, um, we we have uh, Jack Herman's uh, PI friend Steve Ellington, who seems much more the the typical PI with the fedora and the attitude, and the yeah. Ability. I really like I really like the Steve character. The dialogue between uh, between Steve and Jack I thought was some of the funniest some of the funniest little bits in the book. Yep. And it's where a great deal of the humor comes from. Just a, a different dynamic from what we saw in Rockford. And, and I mentioned Rockford because before um, Brubaker shut down his Twitter feed, um, and he, he does explain in the newsletter some of the rationale why, um, before he shut it down, he would have a uh, image of, uh, of Jim Rockford, um, James Garner, uh, from the original opening credits. So. You know, he was evidently a, a fan, or is evidently a fan as well. And then premise-wise, you have a very Rockford-like story, uh, or Rockford-like um, uh, setup, but to tell a really, really dark, really tragic story uh, in it, both for the main character and for uh, the mystery that he's investigating. I, th- I thought that was a nice contrast. And it's just a shame that uh, we couldn't get Jack. Too bad Jack didn't have a nice, healthy. Tom Selleck mustache through the whole book. I think that <laughs> that would have added to it yep. as well. Yeah, this image trade that they um, that they released a couple years back is is a really nice package, like you alluded to. And there's a cool little tidbit that I I appreciated was inside the front and back cover. We get these kind of this uh, this street photography that uh, I, I think Ed Brubaker took. I think I saw in the credits. So there there's some cool shots that I that I enjoyed. It's a nice package. I guess Sean Phillips designed it and put it together and. Um, and Bubba and I were discussing this last night, but we think we think the cover looks like it was done by Sean Phillips as well, too. But um, we didn't necessarily confirm that. But just by looks of it, it, it appears to be. And it has, and, it, and it's definitely Jack Harriman with the details, with the scar and the broken nose. But he never holds a gun in the um, in the the uh, actual story. Yeah, um, it's a striking <laughs> image. It's a striking image of Jack pointing a gun at at the at the reader, you know, straight at, straight out of the book. And um, that's a big plot point in the book is that he um, feels very strongly about guns, avoids them at all costs. And so we don't, he's not, he's definitely not toting, toting a gun in any part of the book at all. In the, the, the cover for the uh, first of the four monthly issues, um, I think it was a little bit moodier with him peering out of uh, blinds, you know, out of a window. But if you look just, just below uh, his eye line, you, you can see he's holding a revolver there too. So... Yeah, I guess that iconography is probably just hard to avoid too in these kinds of stories. It's it's you know it adds it adds it's so much of a part of a noir stories that it'd probably be hard not to throw it in. But and going through the the deluxe hardcover, it occurred to me you know this that 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 not only that Sean Phillips had come in to do the inks for uh, Michael Lark starting with issue two. But that it was a pretty big deal was made about that um, in the the back matter. That Brubaker said that he he didn't mention it was delays or anything. He just mentioned that that Michael Lark was not happy with how the 
the final product looked for the first issue, and that's when when Sean Phillips came on board, and the results were what rougher and more European, I think was was how it was described. And I was just wondering if I could tell the difference between between Lark's inks and Phillips inks. So I tried to find where issue number one ended and issue number two began. And in this hardcover from Image, you cannot tell. Um, and I found that really odd. And what it is is that we actually have a little bit of extra material to make the entire story seem like uh, one seamless novel rather than the collection of uh, four four issues of a miniseries. Um, in the trade paperback and presumably in the, the monthly issues – um, about a third of a single page early on in each issue says, you know, a little piece of good night, part X of four, Ed Brubaker writer, Michael Lark artist, and then, and then the additional credits, letters, colors, uh, editors, etc. Um, and seeing the crime created by Brubaker and Lark, who, who are, who still do have, have the copyright. Um, and that, that little title panel, you can actually see it, um, in the behind-the-scenes artwork at the very end, you see the pencils and inks um, on uh, facing pages toward the very, very end of the book and the bonus features for um, the title page panel for part three of four. But that title doesn't show up. If you go back to that page, you'll actually see that, that the um, bottom of the page has a new image of... of um, of Jack Harriman, um, just almost kind of a medium shot or a, or a close-up shot, and it gives the reader a chance to think, uh, uh, some time to breathe, but it does make for a very seamless uh, read, and that's done literally for all four issues. That um, that either the the scene is the new the new panel is placed on the bottom, or a panel is actually shoved down. And, and a middle panel is shut down and a new panel is placed in the middle. It never has any additional text, so it, so you don't read anything more. It's always a, a quiet panel, but it adds a good bit to the scene, and I have no idea who did it. Yeah, Well, I, I, I'm guessing it was, you know, Brubaker, Mark, and Phillips making the decision to, to put that in, but... You know, was <laughs> was this an old piece of artwork from that era that that Lark? They had just pulled sold? out of the archives, yeah. Yeah, or was it a new piece that Lark did that that uh, Phillips subsequently inked, or is it or is it completely Sean Phillips and and we can't notice the difference? Yeah, that, and it's amazing. Uh, and you also alluded to this earlier, but it's just it's fascinating to see that uh, Brubaker had just established this kind of what's become his trademarks, you know, so early on. And it was it was just fully formed a scene of the crime. You know, you see, like, the, you see cults play a big part in this story, which, well, those would also play strongly into Fatal. Um, the procedural police work shows up in this. You know, we see that again in Gotham Central. And the biggest one is the, the scarred childhood. That, that plays a big part in this story, and we see that time and time again. We've seen it, um, you know, we've seen it in the fade out. We see it kill or be killed. It's a big part. It's been in the criminal books, and... Um, so he had all of these these things established from the, it very early on, and and uh, I just think that's very interesting. Going back for me after re- having read so much of his work, and then I go back to this first story, and I think, man, he had the uh, he had the formula down. And there's some great lines about the kind of the scarred childhood angle. Jack is it's Jack's narration, and he says, "Why were we all ending up with guns in our mouths or needles in our arms? Did anyone actually grow up undamaged, or did some just hide the scars better than others?" I thought that was a great line, and uh, you know that line would work in in Killer Be Killed. You know the same kind of thing. Yep, and and I think it might actually be easier to to, to go back and and list the um, the Brubaker Phillips books that don't have childhood trauma as as a motif. But it's not it's not a formula where it's it's not a formula in the sense that the same play is being repeated over and over again in slightly different settings with the same character wearing a different wardrobe it it's it it's looking at the same uh basic idea of you know the sins of the father being carried down to the or or, uh, uh, being inflicted upon the sons and this this generational trauma and just more and more generally the trauma that 
that adults wittingly or unwittingly inflict on children uh, just to, to um, accomplish their own their own ends and and feed their own their own desires um, it comes up in such different ways that that it feels fresh each time and it's it's still it, it's a truth that's worth reiterating that this is a a common experience that nobody um, nobody enters this existence into a pristine environment where where your parents and your your environment and your upbringing have no negative effects on you. Everybody has has some sort of trauma that they're either going to um, learn from and grow or they're going to repeat and inflict on somebody else. Yeah, and kids, I mean, it's just one of those, it's one of those universal things, I think, that, you know, movies, movies use the kid angle all the time, too. It's just one of those things that resonates with a wide swath of, uh, of the general population, I think, and we can all relate to. It's a pretty dark book, Scene of the Crime, but there's still bits of humor mixed in. It's kind of, and it's about the same balance, I think, that we get from, from uh, most of Brubaker's creator-owned stuff. You know, he's, it's a, like I said, very dark, but um, like the, the interaction between Steve, the other PI, and Jack, there's quite a bit of humor there. They're, uh, they're misadventures trying to track down what's going on. Basically, every time Ellington shows up, um, you know, trouble is just around the corner. Yeah, that guy was cracking me up, and then he, they're they're so they're trying to break into that the compound out in the country, um, that the cult the that the lunar house cult had taken over, and you know they're trying to be real discreet, and he refuses to take off his fedora, which I thought was really funny. You know, it's like the one he was he's wearing a very distinctive private investigator outfit, like what everybody thinks of. You know, since Humphrey Bogart wore it, you know, it's like the fedora and the trench coat, and he's just bound and determined that he's gonna that he's not gonna change before he tries to uh, sneak into their compound. And of course, it doesn't work; it goes south quite quickly. But yeah, the, so there's some good humor in it. There's another, you know, he like he invites his uncle Jack invites his uncle to help him on the stakeout when he goes to the hotel to uh, track down Maggie. And he says, yeah, you hate to lose a trail just because you ran to piss in the bushes. And so he needs somebody to help him out. So there's just, there's some good one-liners in there that, um, that kind of balance out the darkness and, uh, and just make it a real satisfying read. Yep. And, and that sort of humor even came up in the little uh, short story that's, that's at the end of the book where on a different stakeout, um, uh, Jack refuses to tell this this uh, nosy, way too curious uh, kid what's in a bottle that he has in his car. When the the bottle is, you know, you, you don't want to be on stakeout and and miss somebody because you, you took a five minute uh, potty break. Yeah, and and it reminds me a good bit of the very opening scene of the Jeff Bridges movie Crazy Heart, where the um, where the old alcoholic country singer stops at at a um, at a bowling alley for his uh, concert of quote unquote concert. It's his small performance and he steps out of his uh, station wagon. And the first thing he does is empty, you know, I think it was a Mason jar and it's like, yep, I know, (laughs) I know what that was about. Anytime you can get the dude at a bowling alley, good things are bound to happen. Yep. Yep. And then, but but then as, as much humor as, as there was the, the trauma, I would actually say that this is probably, on the mystery part part of it, not on on um, Jack's backstory, this might actually be the darkest story that Brubaker's ever done. Yeah, it's a bizarre it's a bizarre turn of events, and like you said, just very sad. The, the you know the only thing that softens it a little bit because you know, like you said, the incestuous the incestuous stuff and and this the turn of events couldn't be any sadder. The only thing that kind of helps ease that a little bit is that you don't. We just, you know, we only get to see, um, we just get a glimpse of Maggie. You know, we don't get real attached to her because she's only in such a short scene. Um, not that that makes it any better. It just makes it go down a little bit easier. She's there, though, too. <laughs> yeah, no, she really does. She really does. Um, but yeah, that whole their whole family is is it's in a really really messed up place and obviously has been for decades. And yeah, that's the only um, thing that makes it a little bit of an easier pill to swallow is that we don't we. All of those characters, Maggie, Alex, and the mom, um, we don't really spend a lot of time with them as a reader enough to get super, super attached because it's pretty harsh how it all goes down in the end. So The, the unsatisfying conclusion from, uh, from Jack's point of view that nobody is, is um, being put away 
for for these crimes because they can all be plausibly assigned to to somebody else and you know the the supposed killer um is himself dead you know basically that it's wrapped up in a tidy knot but it's in a fundamentally dishonest you know and it's a, it's an untrue it's a false uh conclusion for which the real perpetrators the real the real murderers are not being punished that that gets at him it forces him and um and paul to confront you know what they did um or what he did for for jack um in in his own in his own tragic backstory so you have not only the mystery that the detective is investigating and the mystery that is slowly uh, in the the detective's own backstory that's a mystery that's being slowly revealed to to the reader and to his um his lost love but it they tie together thematically in terms of the of childhood trauma and the very flawed efforts um of of grown-ups to try to correct for that and the fact that that sometimes uh sometimes there isn't if not even a happy ending an, an ending where where justice is really served in the very basic sense of uh of a uh premeditated murderer getting away with it so. well and it just it reiterates the ending of the story reiterates that which we see time and time again in in noir stories and in brubaker stories in particular that there's you know, there's not much difference between the so-called heroes or villains in the story, or the winners and losers. There's no, there's no real difference. You know, and um, you know, Jack alludes to this once we find out, you know, a little more pieces of Jack's history that, and what Paul Raymond's helped him out of is that you know he ended up confronting that he found his dad's killer, confronted him, and ends up killing him, um, and. He, he has a line in there, I thought, that basically summed up what I'm, what I'm trying to say. He says, I'd been living on hate for this guy for years, and here he was dying in my arms, no hardened killer, just another scared fuck-up like me, begging me to forgive him with his last dying breaths. You know, and I think at that moment he realizes, like, you know, this guy, it, you know, he just got in this set of circumstances. It, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't even maliciously after my dad. You know, who knows what, what led him in his life to this point, and, and then here I am, I just killed him, and... I don't even. He doesn't feel any better. He doesn't feel any satisfaction over it. Um, so yeah, there's just there's very little difference between you know nobody's winning basically at the yep. end of this story. And and it's it's a very human version of the classic you know the Batman origin uh, of a guy doing good because of the trauma in his past. And in this ca- and, and one of the the Batman stories that you can tell is what does what Batman does with the the. Uh, murder of his own parents you know in some cases it's um uh, in some continuities for dc comics it's an it's an unresolved unsolved never to be solved mystery in some cases we know who did it it's uh joe chill and he's he's already dead for whatever reasons or he's still around and and batman's haunting him but not but not avenging his his parents deaths and then you had, you know, Tim Burton's movie where it was this sort of um, this sort of uh, a robberous, you know, this Moebius strip where Joker was the one, you know, a young Joker, young Jack Napier was the one who killed his parents. So Joker created Batman, then Batman created Joker. In this case, you have have this just random criminal um, killing killing his dad uh, accidentally, inadvertently. Uh, you know, he wasn't the intended target, and then it wasn't as if, um, as if Jack devoted himself to tracking down the killer. He stumbled across him, and then after the fact, it, it, you know, it was basically that was a a crossroads for him, that Jack was either going to let his life completely self destruct, or he was going to to essentially redeem the time that he still has in front of him and you know that's we we see the results of that of him being a a compassionate dogged um possibly too easily in, in, involved and invested uh a detective and, and even 
uh, the killer's death, you know, yeah, the whole begging for mercy and begging for, for forgiveness. Um, it's a very real, very raw moment. And it's, it's something I think, I think all of us are looking for. You know, kind of like Hamlet with all the without all the uh, soliloquies and, uh, and and sonnets. So it's it's such a well crafted story because you know this that's one of my favorite. You know, I thought that was one of the most powerful moments in the book. Um, and you know, we're talking about a subplot here. This isn't even the main plot of the book. It's it's just uh, like I said, it's it's very well crafted. Yeah, if you look at. Um kind of the bigger picture of, of what Brubaker has covered both in terms of creator owned and more grounded and down to earth books. And in terms of, of the, the capes and cows and superhero uh, books for the, the big two is that uh, when he works with Michael Lark and Sean Phillips, he pretty much covers all the bases or at least all the obvious ones that I can think of or um, uh, in in the area of, uh, of crime and particularly urban crime, you have um, with Lark, you have a, a professional private investigators and, and even um, in this book, um, crime scene photographer uh, in Gotham Central, you have cops in Daredevil, you have a lawyer vigilante. And then while um, while Lark tends to draw more of the thin blue line type characters for um, for Brubaker, Sean Phillips. Brubaker tends to, to draw more of the, the criminals, particularly uh, in, in, in criminal, so uh, the crime element. But you also see in um, Fatal and in particularly the fade-out, you see the same sort of PI-type work, the same sort of detective work, but done um, by complete amateur. Yeah, the ending, the ending of the book I just thought was so strong. Um, like I said, you know, everything's cleared up. With the uh, the Mag the Jordan family, the Maggie and Alexander Jordan family, we get all the answers on how that goes. But then, and, and it's very dark, very depressing. But then we do get a, a glimmer of hope with uh, Jack and his ex girlfriend Gwen appear to be patching up their relationship at the end of the book. They have a nice scene at this cafe at the very end, um, and seem to be like putting things together and and uh, seem to have good things in their future. So there's a little there, there's a little warmth there at the end that helps. And then the you know, and then the the final scene is a uh, there's kind of an epilogue with real powerful narration from Jack, and and he's he's that's where he uh, the line about the little piece of good night comes from. He says Maggie had wanted had wanted something simple, just a little piece of the good night she had never gotten as a child, which of course is the inspiration for the title of this story, a little piece of good night, and it shows it shows Jack and Newt hanging up Maggie's death photo that uh you know Newt's the famous photographer, death scene photographer, so he's He's taking this shot and is hanging up in a shop, and it's a really nice moment in the epilogue. It's sad, but it it gives it some finality. And like I said, we do get a glimmer of hope with Jack and Gwen and their relationship. So it's just a, you know, I loved how this book, how everything came together there in the last third of the book. Yep, and even even that very last panel, uh, having hung up the artwork, it, it's a panorama of basically every every fatality in this story. Starting with the um, the fire at the original cult, the kind of um, um, that was one of the driving events to the mystery's backstory, and then the the uh, two, well, the cult leader, his muscle, the one who who died in in the car, and it kind of really really drives home, you know, number one, the the fact that uh, Newt, um, the the recurring. Uh, uh, kind of almost mentor, father figure, and sidekick all rolled into one. That he was present at all of these deaths, but also the kind of the the weight of of the ripples of death. You know that it wasn't just this one murder. It was it was a it was a string. You know, as one domino fell after the other. Yeah, and that's the most important thing I took from the story was just you know it's just incredible how. This formula that that we've come to know from Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips was there from the very beginning. I mean, this isn't this story isn't Brubaker figuring it out or a, you know a rough draft or a crude version of what he would become. I mean, it's there. Um, it, it, it's really all the pieces are there, and it's it, it's pretty incredible. Like I said, from that early date that he had 
that template down that would work so well as he moved forward and became so, you know a lot higher profile than he was at that time in 1999. Which I think is the same thing Bendis was saying in the introduction is that that he had his voice very early on. Yeah. Well, Bubba, was there anything else on scene of the crime you want to talk about before we uh, move into recommendations? I guess I guess the one last thing was that um, this that wasn't the only uh, story in the book. Um, you know, just a little background about the book is that you know this was um, this this was released during a real heyday for for Vertigo, where it had uh, Sandman, Hellblazer, Invisibles, Transmetropolitan, Preacher, and I think toward the the end of this this three-year span, 100 Bullets. And during this span, they released, at the end of the year, um, this annual called Winter's Edge that was um, an anthology, not of, I guess, um, story premises being tried out, for, for eventual titles, but as uh, as teasers for what's what's to come, and you know, Lark and Phillips were both doing um, work in the first issue in '97. Uh, um, Sean Phillips was working on a a um, title called uh, Minks, which was fairly popular at the time, and then Brubaker, Lark, and Phillips were all in in issue number two uh, in uh, 1998. And that's the one with the the um, scene of the crime story. And then by the time the third issue rolled around uh, in November '99, so you know, eight months after the first issue of Scene of the Crime, you have Brubaker and Lark both in in Winter's Edge, but each of them doing different different books. Uh, Brubaker was teasing uh, Dead Enders that he would do with um, artist Warren Police, which if you think of the the, the, the the book War and Peace. I still can't believe that that's his real name. And then you had uh, Lark working with writer Peter Gross on a Dead Boy Detectives book called uh, Books of Magic, and it just really does show just how how small of a frame of time this particular book captures. It, it captures one story from the very tail end of 1998, and then four comic book issues over the summer, May, June, July, and August, and that's that's it. So yeah, Bubba, did you have a what was your recommendation going to be this month? My my recommendation is um so I'd mentioned uh, Batman, I'd mentioned uh, Tim Burton's uh movie and it's uh yeah, Batman from 1989. Um what what got me thinking of this is in uh prepping uh for really Brubaker and Phillips um first bi- first collaboration at all. Got me thinking back to to, to thinking of, of of how I came into all of this. If we were looking at the the entire arc of their their body of work, and I ended up doing some notes to figure out just what the chronological order was, and and just posted today uh, on the blog a uh, fairly brief but but fully complete uh, bibliography of theirs, and it's it's an impressive chunk of of material and. All of it recommend, recommended to one degree or another. I was thinking of my my own course, how I came from from being you know a kid who liked you know what kids like in the eighties, you know Transformers and, and the like. Um, how I went from that to to being the the sort of guy who takes a copy of Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine with him to work to to read on his lunch break. How how in the world did this happen? And I think as we do cover the the rest of uh, Sean Phillips' work with Ed Brubaker, you know, in these in these off months. I'm going to slowly trace out my own my own history in uh, in that transition. And really, the first major piece has got to be uh, Batman. Um, at that point in 1989, Adam West show still cast, and it still casts a huge shadow, but it casts the dominating shadow in terms of what what the culture knew. Um, as as Batman, you know, um, year one and and the Dark Knight Returns, notwithstanding, you know the the wider world and and kids culture, everybody just just thought of uh, the Adam West show, and I I remember seeing that in reruns growing up, and funny enough, I I don't remember what the TV schedule was, but I always caught the first episode of their two parters. And never caught the, the the conclusion, so I just thought that was their thing: is that they ended every episode on a two with a cliffhanger. With a cliffhanger, yeah. 
so it was it it cast a long shadow and this movie pretty much a um you know uh, uh, uh superseded that shadow and and defined batman for the pop culture at least until christopher nolan came along and it was huge in culture the way that from what i've read uh star wars was in 1977 and certainly the way jurassic park was in 1993 and pretty much the way no other summer blockbuster has really been since the closest you would you you could come since then would probably be be titanic at the turn of the century you know and it was a christmas release chick flick um i would say that and, and at the time it was it was huge you could not get away from from the batman logo from from the prince soundtrack um i ended up with a poster of the batmobile in my bedroom and had this really nice hardcover book of the um of the the art design uh, of the movie and you know it, it's it still has a presence i actually just um introduced uh, the movie to my preschooler um he uh there's this thing called flashback cinema that does um old movies you know sunday and wednesday nights each week and i know citizen kane is coming up i know the godfather is coming up and i want to say end of september early october they did um tim burton's batman took yeah it's the very beginning of october we just got back from vacation i i took uh the three-year-old boy and myself um, he dressed up as Batman, his, his Halloween costume. And, and, you know, there were times that, that, that the movie was a little intense for the little guy. And there were times where, where it, was, it dragged a little. But when it was in the midst of its set pieces, you know, the Batmobile and the, the, the gadgets and the, the soaring thematic, you know, or, or orchestral theme, theme music, he, he, was, he was transported the way I was, you know, when, when I was... Uh, uh, 10 years old and it's particularly since the the nolan movies it's it it would be hard to argue that this is the best batman movie though you know you can see similarities you know with with both of them deal you know the joker deals with the mob and terrorizes the media and there's even the the confrontation not just with batman but with batman in in a vehicle going down the, the the road uh not the best batman movie at this point um, and I would say that anybody who who nitpicks uh, comic book adaptations that there there is going to be changes, you know that that um, in transition tran- in the transition from comic from especially serialized comic where you're seeing the same characters again and again over literal decades to to the movies where ideally every movie actually matters, you're going to see you're going to see. Um, uh, differences, you know. I, I think the drawback for the Marvel movies, at least at this point, in their what is it, end of Phase Two or beginning of Phase Three, whatever it is, is that that it's too easy for things to be reset in, in the Marvel Cinematic u- Universe. The the stakes are always seemingly high, but but never long term. Um, but this, you know, this this had a um, Jack Nicholson as the Joker, his origin and his demise, all in one story. You know, not this this um, story of Joker always coming back, always finding a way to get away. But it's a great movie. It's fun. It's rollicking. It's well made. Uh, there there are visual themes that keep recurring. You know, where where the Joker and then Bruce Wayne and Vicky Vale are both ascending staircases. One scene, literally one scene after the other. You know, pretty much simultaneously. You see this recurring theme of a of a missing shoe, almost like a, a Cinderella. Uh, shoe and it's probably tim burton at almost his most restrained um i think we were we were talking offline about batman returns and that's a good movie too but it's definitely a tim burton movie with batman trappings this uh, i would say that this movie is more of a of a batman movie with some tim burton flourishes and this movie and and a later movie he did called big fish i think really benefit from from, from Tim Burton being a little more restrained in, in his direction. It has great style. It has great music, particularly the themes from, from Danny Elfman. Great art design. Huge um, exterior sets. Like, and and um, I think that's another big difference with that in Batman Returns is that the, the exteriors seem pretty claustrophobic. In, in 89 Batman, it seems like a full-scale city. 
though if you look closely enough they're they're just refilming the the same backgrounds with different lighting and different angles and they're making the most of every square inch of 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 the the uh back lot that they built but it works it's convincing um and you know the style was probably copied by too many other superhero flicks the whole grim and dark and you know moody and that sort of thing and it's too easy to to say you know going dark by by amping up the violence and that sort of thing i think um the incredibles the pixar movie was actually uh, is probably the superhero that bet movie that best captures the other mood you know the 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 light-hearted uh movie even despite its its dark premise of all, so many superheroes being being wiped out but it's it's um on its own you know if you ignore its influences for for better or for worse it's a it's a great, great movie with great style, and it. Yeah, there's so many. There's you know the superhero genre. There's you know they're a dime a dozen now, but it's like if you take Batman in '89 when it came out and compare it to you know the very few superhero movies that had come before it, like it really does stand out. You know, it's not. It it, it was a unique thing, and it the impact was huge. You know, way bigger than I think any even as as big as a lot of those Marvel contemporary Marvel movies are, I still don't feel like they have the impact that Batman did when it came out, just because, I mean, nobody was making superhero movies right then. Um, I mean, you had the Superman movies prior to that. But that was um, a decade before, too. Yeah, and then other than that, I mean, it was it just wasn't a thing right then, and, and, and that movie just, you know, I still, yeah, like, like you said, I just remember that. I remember that summer when that came out. That was a huge, huge deal. And yeah, and, and from my background you know for for my life story it, it's it sets the stage for later and greater works and it and all the pieces are there you know both the 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 moody tone but also um crime and tragedy and urban noir is that you know it takes a few years you have to grow up a bit but you can draw a line from from batman from tim burton's batman to a movie like like heat and ultimately and, and nolan's uh, dark knight movies um, or, and we'll see in later conversations, hopefully, it is going from uh, the Batman um, movie to Batman the Animated Series, which used the same, the same theme as the opening theme music, to, to some of the really, really sophisticated comic books, like Batman Black and White, the, the short story anthology, and that leads directly to, um, to Gotham Central. And if Gotham Central hooks you, 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 there is not a single book from that uh, bibliography that I posted of Brubaker and Phillips' works that I wouldn't recommend to you. So, I went the film route too this month for uh, for my recommendation. Um, I watched a Robert Duvall movie that I've never seen um, called The Outfit. It's a 1973 crime film directed by John Flynn. Uh, based on the book by uh, Richard Stark, also known as Donald Westlake. Nice. Of course, it's yes. a, it's, it's uh, one of the Parker books. It's it's also one that was adapted into comics form by Darwin Cook that uh, we spoke of at length on an earlier episode of the podcast, and I've of course read that, but um, had not seen this film before. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a good watch. It's it stars a relatively young and lean Robert Duvall as the the Parker character, although his name is Earl in this film. Uh, the opening scene's pretty great. It shows Earl's brother being gunned down in his backyard by two hitmen. One's dressed as a priest smoking a cigarello, and the other's dressed as a, his taxi driver. And so they, they pull up in, in the guy's yard, gun him down, and uh, Earl is released from prison shortly after his brother's death and sets out to avenge his brother's murder. So he takes on this crime syndicate that's known as The Outfit. That's responsible for his brother's death, and so that's what the that's what the movie, um, that's the story the movie tells. And you know, there's there's some slightly rigid acting in it at times, and you know, some of the the action scenes are pretty unrealistic and resolve themselves in real quick ways. I mean, there's some, so it's not it's not a perfect movie by any means, but um, overall, just a very enjoyable crime film. And and Robert Duvall's great as always, as he always is, as as he was in in Crazy Heart, the uh, the the piss jar movie I mentioned earlier. So yeah. Yeah, I mean Robert Duvall. Yeah, Robert Duvall. You know, watch you know watch Lonesome Dove or something. That's just like an acting class, you know. If you watch Robert Duvall in that, but you know, and this movie's set in the early '70s, and it so it very much feels kind of in the same vein as 
as lots of the criminal books that are set in roughly that same era. You know, you have lots of full-throated early 70s American muscle cars and, um, you know, some pretty good fast-paced gunfights and these shady side characters. And you see, uh, the, you know, they capture the kind of that, that ruthless drive that the Parker character has pretty well. Um, and, you know, he definitely doesn't hold back for anyone, including women. You know, once he has a, a mission in mind, there's there's no stopping him. And uh, this movie, it is a slightly softer version of the Parker character than we than probably what we see in the in Darwin Cook's adaptations. You know, there's a few brief moments of kind of compassion and warmness from him that that really aren't there in the comics. But every film adaptation tries to soften the Parker character, not realizing that that's that that's that's not why not we really like the character. Him. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, it's definitely worth looking up, like I said, if you're a fan of the criminal books, because it kind of feels of a in a similar vein as those, you know, in set in a similar era. So yeah, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the film very much and um, hadn't seen it until very recently. So so yeah, check it out. And, and you you had mentioned it um, uh, off offline, so I did some looking. I'm I'm rather I don't know if I want to say shocked or disappointed, Robert, that that you did not mention. The, the big reason to watch this movie, and his name is Joe Don Baker. <laughs> no, that's true. You're right. I did not point that out. Well, and I, I, you know, I got a, I kind of felt the same way, Bubba. Without you, didn't bring up Billy D. Williams when you were talking about Batman '89. Yes, yes, he should have, he should have been Two Face. Yes. Well, and, and he's part of my grand, my 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 uh, grand conspiracy theory that Batman and. Uh, the, the Jedi and Rebels from Star Wars don't get along. Because you have Billy D. Williams in 89, who eventually, yeah, playing, playing Harvey Dent, who eventually becomes Two-Face. You have, have Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, did the voice for the Joker in the animated series. And then uh-huh. you have, have Liam Neeson, who played Qui-Gon Jinn in, in um, The Phantom Menace, playing, you know, spoiler alert, playing a bad Raza guy in, in Batman Begins. So, yeah. Batman and the Jedi, as much as I like Star Wars, as much as I like Batman, they, they apparently don't mix. But yeah, Billy D. always happy to see Billy D. pop up in any movie. Oh, yeah. Or any Colt 45 ad, for that for that matter. <laughs> Cause, and I think it was doing uh, Colt 45 ads at about the same time, so yeah. Well, we've reached that point in the evening where we're um, breaking down Billy D.'s Colt 45 ads, so we'll probably wrap things up here for this evening. and That's where um, we'll pick up next next time sure yeah yeah definitely and like i said next episode we'll be back on killer be killed but want to take this opportunity to uh, dive into the back catalog which we want to do from time to time when we have an open month um so once again we we definitely appreciate you guys joining us um yeah check us out undertow.podbean.com or itunes send us an email undertowpodcast at gmail.com and uh want to thank bubba for uh joining me this evening you know you hate to mess up a podcast because you ran to piss in the bushes so you know it's always good to have two of us on here to to cover for the other Um, anyway i think we will sign off for this evening and uh, we will see you guys in about a month and uh, thanks again See